Thanks for listening to Resilient History, the podcast that examines ignored, forgotten, and partially told history. I'm your host, Gordon Black. In this episode, we look at the role of the media in times of crisis. Does the media reflect public sentiment, or does it shape how people actually see the world? In this case, we're talking about the pre-electronic world, the era when most Americans got their news from either newspapers or the radio. Soon after the Japanese Imperial Air Force bombed the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor in 1941, U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt issued an executive order calling for the internment of any people of Japanese heritage on the West Coast. The executive order pointedly did not include people of Japanese ancestry in the Hawaiian Islands. The first group of civilians ordered to leave their homes lived in Washington State on Bainbridge Island, six miles west of Seattle and close to the U.S. Navy shipyard at Bremerton. In total, some 120,000 Japanese Americans, many were U.S. citizens, were imprisoned in camps across the western U.S. and in Arkansas. Although the U.S. government has since apologized for the treatment directed to Japanese Americans and awarded reparation payments, the event still retains painful insights on how a government can treat its own citizens and residents. Joining me to discuss how the Seattle Times, one of the largest daily papers in Washington state at the time, covered the event is Nina Wallace, media and outreach manager for Danshow, an archive and public history organization that has documented Japanese American incarceration. Welcome. Thank you, Gordon. Happy to be here. At the time of the roundup of some 200 islanders from Bainbridge, is it fair to say that vilification of people of Japanese ancestry was the order of the day in newspapers? Oh, definitely. Um, Yeah, I don't know that there was a single mainstream newspaper that advocated for Japanese Americans or really pushed back on the narrative that, you know, they were a threat and, you know, needed to be taken away. So um, I think yeah, that the Seattle Times coverage was very much par for the course. Was the coverage much different from how non-white people might have been reported on prior to 1941? No, I mean, I think that, you know, something we say at Densho a lot is that, um, you know, the incarceration didn't happen overnight. Um, you know, people didn't just kind of magically turn against Japanese Americans after Pearl Harbor. Um, I mean, it was a very long time coming. And, you know, there's a longer history of Japanese immigrants and Asian immigrants being portrayed in the media as this kind of yellow peril threat that, um, you know, these Asian immigrants were coming over and, you know, posing this threat to white America. And, you know, so you see kind of in the, you know, late 1800s, early 19, um, early 20th century. But yeah, there's a lot of editorials and um, even, you know, just straight, you know, kind of quote news coverage, just advocating for um, bans on Asian immigration and, you know, supporting things like alien land laws that prevented Asian immigrants from being able to own property and, you know, kind of establish roots in this country. Um, so yeah, so there's, a, it's definitely part of this much longer history of demonizing Asian and Japanese people in America. The U.S. would eventually also declare war on Germany. Was there any difference in how the media regarded Americans of German ancestry? 
You know, to be honest, I I haven't really seen a lot of news coverage from that period on German Americans or Italian Americans that, you know, the US was also at war with. I mean, in the the Seattle Times coverage, um, there there's kind of a, a side article next to that coverage of the forced removal from Bainbridge that you mentioned that um, it does mention German and um, Italian Americans, but um, it's it's very brief and um, it kind of it's sort of listing um, all of the different categories of people who are susceptible to removal. And, you know, there's kind of a couple like very brief mentions of, you know, very specific groups within uh, the German American community that um, if surveillance and um, intelligence agencies have determined you to be a threat, then you you may be taken away. Uh, But it was very different from this mass removal of Japanese Americans, where you see, you know, people who are you know toddlers who are American citizens being taken away, or you know elders who you know there's a, a story within the the Bainbridge removal where an elderly woman actually had a heart attack as she was being taken away, and nobody saw fit to take, maybe take her to a hospital, or you know maybe maybe she wasn't a threat, maybe she didn't need to go. But there's a difference I think between um, you know this mass removal of an entire ethnic community that you saw with Japanese Americans versus the um, you know more limited internment of German and Italian Americans. Um, there was you know there were I think about thirteen thousand German and Italian Americans who were interned during World War II. So you know it, it did happen, um, but when you look at kind of the, you know, what number that is within the entire population. I mean, it was like less than 0.1% of the entire German and Italian American population in the U.S. Um, Whereas, you know, for Japanese Americans, I think over 90% of us lived on the West Coast during World War II. And so um, it really was, you know, kind of trying to remove an entire ethnic group. How would you quantify the level of influence of daily newspapers back in the 40s? How big a role did they play? It's hard for me to say what um, kind of what the role it was in individual people's lives or, you know, how much it played into, um, you know, kind of their opinions and, and thought process around it. But people didn't have social media. They didn't, they couldn't like go online and Google what's happening. And so I think newspapers were the main source of information for a lot of people. And when the only narrative that you're seeing in that information source is telling you, you know, Japanese Americans are dangerous, Japanese Americans are untrustworthy, you know, I'm sure that that had a huge impact on how neighbors and people around Japanese Americans looked at them. Can you describe the process that led to the Seattle Times revisiting its 1940s coverage of internment? From what I understand, this is something that people on staff at the Times have been pushing for, and um, and, you know, and especially journalists of color on staff. Crystal Paul, who was the editor of this series, wrote a really great piece, kind of explaining some of the background and um, just saying that you know she, as a black woman, going into kind of the community and trying to report different stories, and you know, just seeing that there was a lot of mistrust between communities of color and the Seattle Times, and you know, and other 
newspapers like that, that, you know, have historically been um, very much like white led and white run, you know, have taken positions on things like Japanese American incarceration that uh, were really harmful. There was kind of a a lack of trust there. And so um, I think for them, a big part of why the Times wanted to pursue this project is to be able to kind of restore that trust and, you know, to be able to acknowledge where they have fallen short in the past and you know, do better in the future. But in terms of Densho's involvement, the main piece we collaborated with them on was the annotated pages. And so um, the Times approached us and asked us to help kind of go over their you know, 1942 cover page story, which was on the forced removal from Bainbridge Island, um, and to just really take a very detailed look at that and kind of scrutinize what they said at the time and, you know, what they left out or what misinformation they presented or whose voice wasn't included, those kind of things. And so, you know, we we saw a lot of slurs, we saw um, a lot of government propaganda just kind of uncritically being repeated and things like that. Can you give me an example of the kind of uncritical government propaganda that was repeated in the Times coverage? One line they have in there is, you know, the evacuation was a credit to the efficiency of the army. Um, And so it's kind of framed as, you know, an evacuation, first of all, which, you know, it sounds like this is a positive thing that, you know, is being done for people's safety. Um, And, you know, it's not being framed as what it really was, which was, you know, a forced removal by armed soldiers. And so um, it's just kind of flipping it so that it it sounds like it's, you know, this happy, great thing. And, you know, that, uh, that, yeah, that it was a good thing for everyone involved. And, you know, it really kind of downplays the, the hardships that people experienced and, you know, what they were leaving behind. And um, also just looking at, you know, who is quoted in the story. I mean, they do have a couple quotes from Japanese Americans, but, you know, they're very curated, I guess I would say, you know, they're, they're not talking to anyone who was angry about what was happening to them or anyone who, you know, was expressing grief over having to, you know, leave behind this life that they've worked to build over a few decades. Um, instead, they have quotes from people kind of saying that, oh, yeah, you know, we were sad to leave, but we're happy to do our part to support the war effort. Um, so it's things like that. Why do you think it's important for a newspaper or indeed any media to look inwards at how it has covered race in the past? I think it's important because, you know, a lot of this is still very much with us. Racism and xenophobia are not in the past. And um, you know, even just looking at the example of Japanese American incarceration, you know, we still today are seeing the government targeting immigrant communities and especially immigrant communities of color uh, with detention and deportation and incarceration. And so I think it is important to be able to look back at our history and look at how these things have been talked about in the past, because when we understand that better, um, I think we can recognize when those patterns are being repeated. And, you know, we have more knowledge and understanding to, you know, kind of help us speak out in the present moment. What do you think has been the main thing that Densho has learned from working with the editors at the Seattle Times? Mm, That's a good question. Um, You know, honestly, it was a really great experience. I mean, I think that 
just seeing the amount of care that they put into it and how much they really wanted to get this right was really encouraging. Um, And I think that um, maybe not something that we have learned from it, but, you know, something that we are taking away from this experience is we've heard a lot of positive feedback from people who, you know, whose own families were impacted by this and just how much it meant to see this major media outlet take accountability for their role during the war and um, to be able to say that, you know, we were wrong, this is how we're going to do better. And so, you know, something that we're taking away is just hope that, you know, other outlets um, maybe do the same. Do you have plans to speak to other media outlets? I think here of the Bremerton Sun, which is a local paper where the U.S. Navy shipyard is based. And I've actually seen some of the coverage that it provided at the time. And it's certainly of the similar tone to the Seattle Times. You know, I think there is definitely a lot of possibilities for collaboration around that. I don't think at the moment we have plans, but yeah, we, we would love to to see more newspapers do that. And um, we would love to to work with them and support them in doing that. For an educator listening to this podcast, what advice would you offer in helping them gain additional understanding about the approach that Dan Show took with the Seattle Times and about media coverage in general about these issues? You know, in general, just to to always take things with a grain of salt. And, you know, when you're looking at media coverage that, you know, to always be kind of questioning who wrote this, you know, whose voice is included, whose voice is not included, um, to just kind of be asking those critical questions and looking for other sources and, you know, you know, is what's printed in this newspaper supported by maybe something that, you know, another resource is saying. And, you know, I think it, it's helpful to, you know, to always be looking for that kind of, you know, validation or evidence to support it, to, you know, not just take the the one voice that you hear as the truth without looking into it a little further. At Densho, we, we do have a lot of the past Seattle Times um, kind of editorials and articles related to Japanese American history and our own archives. And, you know, I know that there, you know, there's a lot of archives that kind of go back and, and look at um, what newspapers were saying at the time. So I think it's always really valuable to just turn to the archives and you know, see what's in there and kind of do your own exploration. You know, I'll, I'll give a plug for, <laughs> for Densho and we do have a lot of educational materials around this history too. And, you know, some of it is kind of touching on the role of the media and kind of using um, how newspapers covered the incarceration as sort of a case study to talk about media literacy and um, what it means to, you know, to be an informed reader. That was Nina Wallace, Media and Outreach Manager for Densho, a historic organization and archive that has documented the imprisonment of Japanese Americans by the U.S. government during World War II. Thank you, Nina. Thanks, Gordon. For the record, I did reach out to the Seattle Times newspaper to get someone to speak to me about their 1942 coverage, but was unable to secure an interview. If you enjoy listening to Resilient History, please tell your friends and subscribe at the source where you typically get your podcasts. Resilient History is written and produced by me, Gordon Blank. I'm a high school history teacher. Thanks for listening.